Skull Rock Podcast is brought to you by the generosity of the following companies. Sure, sound extraordinary. To podcasters, recording musicians, and streamers who are looking for studio quality audio at home or on the road, the Sure MV7 Podcast Kit is a premium all-in-one solution inspired by the legendary Shure SM7B and is designed to address the versatility required by modern creators. For more on the Shure MV7 Podcast Kit, visit Shure.com, S-H-U-R-E.com, or click the link in our show notes. Shure, sound extraordinary. And by The Old Mill Press, publishing beautifully crafted books that illuminate our world. To learn more, visit TheOldMillPress.com. And by listeners like you. Hey, this is artist Sue Blanchard, and you're listening to the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, L. John Goh and Dave Bossert. Welcome once again to an episode of Skull Rock Podcast, the show about all things Disney and pop culture, where every week we take you behind the scenes of some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, what's streaming in, what's in theaters, what's going on in the whole universe of entertainment. I'm Al John Goh, guitar player, longtime pop culturist with Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars fans everywhere. I'm with you. I'm a geek. You can contact me at aljohn, A-L-J-O-N, skullrockpodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard, fire eater and pro wrestler, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Well, Al John, uh, here we are for another show. We've got a great guest, uh, Jake Friedman, author of the Disney Revolt, which I've read from cover to cover, I must tell you. Uh, and I'm looking forward to chatting with Jake about this because it's uh, it's really a pivotal piece of Disney history. So uh, that's coming up. And uh, how are you doing? Everything well? Everything's great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to Jake as well. That uh, book is in the queue. And uh, I'm looking forward to delving into that uh, later in the week. But, uh, you know, we had a busy week in Nashville. Um, not only did we have a, a bunch of stuff happen at the office, but uh, we had one of my guitar heroes, Alex Lifeson from the band Rush, come into town and do some content for us. And um, he did a little press release, um, a little not press release, but a press conference um, while he was in town. And um, I'm getting ready to uh, work or release a brand new signature guitar for for him. And uh, he said that all of the proceeds, all of the royalties from his guitar are going to benefit the Nashville Children's Hospital and Room at the Inn, which helps uh, homeless uh, people and people in need. And that's awesome. I, that is so awesome. I couldn't believe, for one, how how much more touched I am by when celebrities and people that you know I grew up listening to or, or watching or whatever when they when they do really charitable things like that. I mean, he's got more than enough money, but I love that man. He is just such a just a joy uh, there, there's such a joy you know when you meet people like yourself dave you know you meet people i meet you and even though um it was years since we actually had a face-to-face meeting i knew that you were just a kind spirit and then when i met alex lifeson initially years ago he was so kind and genuine uh with his time very uh very generous 
Mm-hmm. And now you see him be a philanthropist and, and I wish more people were like that. No, I think it's fantastic. I mean, I love it when, uh, when people like that do it, he doesn't need the money, you know? So no. uh, why not do something good with it? You know, no. it's fantastic. Yeah. And you guys are doing a great, great thing by, you know, putting out a signature guitar of his. Oh, of course. Yeah. You know, Alex mm-hmm. has been, um, in the family, if you will, for many, many years. And, He's worked with us, but, um, you know, he recently sold a lot of guitars from his collection and uh, a lot of proceeds went to charities up there in Ontario where he's from. And he recently did a, um, I think it was Matt Stone from South Park and and Trey Parker. They had a little celebration, I think, for Matt's birthday or something like that I saw on the Internet. And he had Geddy Lee and him uh, join him on stage to do a little impromptu jam of a Rush song, which was kind of neat. So it's been a big week for Alex, but uh, it's pretty I, I got cool. a question for you. Yeah. Do, do a lot of these uh, rock guitarists literally have massive collections of guitars? Oh, oh yes. Um. Because, you know, I have to say, you know, uh, like I, I understand from watching a number of the Rolling Stones documentaries over the years, like Keith Richards has like a semi truck. Yes. that has all his guitars in it, and he has like a guitar technician yes. that knows every one of his instruments, right? Uh, 100%. In fact, Dave, when you come to Nashville, we yeah. have Keith Richards' rig in our vault. Do you really? I do, yeah. We have what, his is amplifier. Is that what they store it? Or? Yeah, he just puts his little, I mean, it's his little amplifier, uh, yeah. Mesa Boogie amplifier he's had throughout his entire career that he's played since the uh, maybe the late 70s, 80s, somewhere late yeah. 80s. And it's in this tour case, and it says KR on it, and then, and then of course I touched it. You had to touch it, right? Of course. And then, um, so that amp is in there. I think we've got an amp from one of the uh, from Kirk Hammett from Metallica, and just a bunch of different people. But yeah, wow. it's not it's not um, it's not uncommon. You know, Johnny Depp uh, has a truckload of guitars. Uh, you know, my studio, I've got a bunch of guitars in here, and then um, people like Kiefer Sutherland has got a, a massive guitar collection. Um, Keith Richards, of course, you mentioned uh, one of the notable guitar collectors, of course, is one of my all-time favorites, is a Cheap Trick. They have oh. Rick, Rick Nielsen has got, um, uh, and Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top, they have guitar collections that span like an entire house, and they do Yeah, have, and I, I, I understand, uh, like Eric Clapton had a, a whole mess of guitars that he, he sold a bunch of them, I think, a few years ago at auction. Yeah, he, he did. Um, it's fascinating, uh, and you can look at, you know, Slash from Guns N' Roses or anybody. Um, we actually have a series on Gibson TV. If you check out the collection, you get to see the collection of a lot of these stars from like Dweezil Zappa to, you know... Um, uh, I think we did Rick Nielsen as well. Um, uh, Don Felder from uh, the Eagles, right? Wow. So there's a bunch of people um, that we have kind of outlined throughout time and, and and interviewed them, and they just crack open a bunch of guitar cases and talk about the history and how they acquired the guitar, if it had a second life before it met you, right? I think that one of Eric Clapton's guitars, um, you know, had, had been given and hand, handed down from player to player, so I think one of Eric Clapton's Gibsons it ended up going to Ronnie Wood and Ronnie Wood ended up giving it to this person and this person. So it's really interesting to see how those guitars have been recorded throughout albums and albums with different guitar players over time. Uh, that's really amazing. You know, you mentioned the Eagles. Uh, my daughter went to high school with the son of the Eagles bass player. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's you know, cool. The guy, with, the guy with the really long hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it was just it was, it was kind of freaky, you know, to go to a high school event and to see him there. Oh, you, I, you sort of <laughs> like looking around and all saying like, "Hey, that dude is from the Eagles." Yeah, it's like, you know? uh, yeah, you know, uh, yeah. I'm trying to I'm trying to remember his name. It's uh, was it? Um, I can't remember oh. it off the top of my head because it's been so many years. But I I I know I like I have a picture of him in my head. And anytime I've seen like the Eagles, uh, you know, it's doing Tim. something, whether it's like concert footage or whatever, I'm like, oh, there's that guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Tim, Tim Schmidt. That's it. Yeah. Tim Schmidt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. I'm, I'm trying to remember. He, um, what, what song did he do that I, I can't tell you why, right? He's the one that. Oh no, no. I'm trying to remember what. Anyway, now I, we're going down this this know. rabbit hole. We're going down Google. a rabbit hole. Is right. Hey, you see. <laughs> oh, there you go. Hey, uh, we've got an. As you alluded to, we had an awesome. We have an awesome guest waiting in the wings with Jake Friedman of the Disney Revolt. We'll talk about that. But uh, before we get into the news headlines, uh, what have you been watching this week, Dave? Well, you know, it's interesting. I haven't watched a, a lot like I have in the past few weeks, but I did watch 1883 with oh, Sam yeah. Elliott. Uh, yeah. and Isabel May on uh, Paramount Plus. It also stars Tim McGraw and his wife, uh, Faith Hill. Right on. And believe it or not, uh, there was a cameo by Tom Hanks and a cameo in another episode by Rita Wilson. Because <laughs> apparently, apparently uh, Tim McGraw and Faith Hill are friends with Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson. Quick story. Tom and Rita do a lot of stuff in Nashville and recording because uh-huh. of Rita's career in music. Yeah. So they're, they're here quite a bit. I'm sure they befriended each other, especially going to uh, things like the Grand Ole Opry together. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I watched 1883. I have to say I enjoyed it. The cinematography is absolutely beautiful. Uh, and it really sort of traces, uh, um, you know, a group of pioneers going from Texas to Oregon. And I, I commented to Nancy that I felt like this, it felt like it was, you know, really raw and, and brutal. You know what I mean? Gotcha. Like it wasn't sugarcoated, you know, how people died on these, you know, the Oregon trail and, you know, uh, all of the things that they encountered bandits and Indians and, dysentery, or I should say native Americans. I'm sorry. Native Native Americans. Uh, but you know, it, it's really, it, it was an enjoyable series. I really liked it. I think it was 10 episodes. Uh, highly recommend it. Great production value. Mm -hmm. Um, one thing I did catch and, I could be wrong, but in, I think it was episode eight, uh, they go to a, a fort uh, and the flag flying on the pole looked like it had 50 uh, stars on it. Oops. And in 1883, the United States only had 38 states. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, it, you know, it, maybe it was me, but I really do think it was 50 stars. And I thought to myself, come on, you couldn't get a flag with 38 stars on it. You know, that's hilarious. But other than that, I absolutely enjoyed it. I recommend it. I also finished watching the marvelous Mrs. Maisel on prime, a uh, beautiful show. Uh, really enjoyed it a lot. Um, 
I also finished watching the last movie stars, which is the uh, documentary about Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. Yeah. Um, on HBO Max, that was, uh, you know, I have to say, uh, I enjoyed it for the most part, but you know, Ethan Hawke directed it, and you know, he's an actor, so he inserted himself throughout the entire thing. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I, I kind of felt that was annoying, you know, <laughs> and uh, and I think it would have been better served if it was just a straight off documentary without us uh, having him talking to these different stars who he brought on to do the voiceovers of various people, you know, I find like it, George, yeah. like George Clooney does Paul Newman. Sure. Right. Sure. And and I, I and I get you're going to have it in the credits, but you know while you're watching the documentary, if if it's done well, you're sucked in and you feel like that's Paul Newman narrating, even though it's George Clooney. Right. Right. One hundred percent. I I feel like that happens a lot, um, especially with YouTube. <laughs> I don't mean to say when YouTube documentaries happen, a lot of people become the stars of a subject matter that they're not stars of. Yeah. Just ego. It takes away, it takes away from the documentary. I think it does. It it still was great insight into, uh, these two, you know, top movie stars. Uh, and you know, there's interviews from their, uh, daughters and there's interviews from their grandsons. Uh, it, you know, I enjoyed all of that stuff, but every time Ethan Hawke came on, it was sort of like, dude, enough, you know, we, we know who you are. We know you're directing. Shut up. Let's yeah. like watch all this is supposed to be about Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. Yeah. You and should, then, uh, you should learn anyway. from Ron Howard. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think I mentioned, uh, the last time I brought this up when I first watched the first two episodes of this documentary, Right. it's like. Go check out Amy Poehler's uh, documentary on uh, Lucille Ball and Ricky Arnaz. Uh, yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's incredible. And she did a fantastic job with that documentary and she didn't insert herself into it. Right. It, she directed it. It's like you're, you're you know, she gave 100 percent of the film to the stars, yes. you know, and not to herself. Sure. So anyway, and then finally. I have to tell you, Al John, when I first saw the advertisement for She-Hulk attorney at law, I rolled my eyes. Uh-huh. I was like, you got to be kidding me. Right. Yeah, yeah. And then I read some reviews uh, and the reviews weren't bad. And they make make some comparisons to things like Ally McBeal and whatnot. Um I decided to watch the first episode. I was actually hoping they would have dropped two episodes, but I watched the first episode. I really liked it. Yeah. It was really well done. Yeah. I agree. Really well done. And I have to tell you, um, and, and I don't think this is a spoiler, uh, Mark Ruffalo is in it uh, as uh, the Hulk. Yeah. And uh, I have to tell you, the smart Hulk that he portrays in there. Yeah. That's all CG. Yeah. Really well done. Yeah. You know, one of the things I hated about the early Hulk movies was that the Hulk didn't look good. He, he looked CG. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? In those Universal Hulk movies, uh-huh. uh, I I never yeah. really bought into it. Yeah, but I have to tell you, uh, the technology has advanced so so much that he, you know, the CG Smart Hulk in this series is really well done. Right on. I'm with you. Really good. I, I I don't know, but anyway, that I have to say, I highly recommend it. I I would tell our uh, audience check out She Hulk Attorney at Law. I know if you're like me and you rolled your eyes when you saw this, and you're like, I'm never watching that. Do yourself a favor and watch it because it is actually really well done. I agree with you, Dave. It's fun. It there's is. nothing. There's nothing wrong with a little fun, and even though She Hulk. In the comic book, historically, has broken the fourth wall. I feel like we're going to get an explanation about her. Um, and they hinted it. Like, you mean you don't have, like, a second personality like I do? That's what Bruce Bruce Banner had said, Mark Ruffalo. Right, right. And she goes, I don't think so. I don't think I have a second identity. I think we are going to know that she does. And it's maybe, we're, maybe we're going to find that we're going to find out it's going to manifest itself in this, you know, breaking the fourth wall situation that she's talking to her other self. Yes. Or, yes. you know, because that would make perfect sense, you know, for, for the Jekyll and Hyde Hulk kind of character. We haven't seen her rage filled Hulk. It's basically been, well, it's playtime. I'm going to have a good time. And this is my bubbly personality and I'm into yoga and my Hulk is into yoga and, you know, this, it's, and then the cool thing is you find out what happened during the blip, you know, what happened after um, Endgame or Infinity War before Endgame when all the other heroes were blipped. You know, you found out that Natasha started leading the Avengers and Clint Barton, uh, Hawkeye, ended up becoming basically a, a revenge uh, killer. And you find out that Bruce Banner and and um, Tony Stark ended up building this uh, refuge out there in the middle of Mexico and he couldn't finish building the bar because he was so depressed and basically like Thor kind of drank his way, became a little bit of an alcoholic um, because he was so depressed after losing that battle. I, I, I found that to be really nice that there was a, some other context to what happened to the heroes um, that we don't know off screen. So that was nice, yeah. but yeah, yeah, I liked it. The effects were good. Um, this week for me, uh, of course, n- nothing is uh, uh, nothing is more fascinating to me than my delve back into the '90s with Woodstock last week and Trainwreck. I had to go in and deep deep dig and find Woodstock: Peace, Love, and Rage on HBO Max. <laughs> now <laughs> that's favorite. about the original 1969. Oh well, no, this is actually about. Um, well, they did; they hinted at it, but it's also about Woodstock '99. Oh, okay. This is the Woodstock 99. Yeah. So, you know, so uh, Trainwreck last week I talked about was about Woodstock 99 in a three-parter episode on Netflix. This is on HBO Max. It was released in 2021 and it has a different take on what happened there. Uh, A lot of the same players were interviewed, but uh, there's a lot of archival footage and things of that nature um, talking it, but what what is interesting is you know you watched we watched the Woodstock '69 documentary, and yeah. it did a great job of chronicling the good aspects of Woodstock, yeah. um, and not and the uh, the artists and the bands that performed there, but not so much that there were issues there at the original Woodstock. A lot of oh, people gosh, understand there that there was there was tons of issues. People crashed the gate, and then there was a lot of sickness and a lot of other things that went on there. 
And so they're like, you know, their tilt on it was basically how this generation in the late nineties didn't necessarily need another Woodstock, you know, but what happened is, you know, the corporate greed and all that. So yeah, it's another take on it. Interesting. Yeah. I I'm going to watch, uh, I think I was going to try and watch the, the latest one, which was the train wreck one you saw last week. Yeah. It's, it's, it's good. It's good. Yeah. Um, and it's an easy watch. I also, because we love horror, we saw orphan kill on Paramount plus, (laughs) and we were a big fan of the original orphan movie. It's about, um, a girl that gets adopted into this, um, you know, unknowing family and the family, the original one was, uh, the family didn't know that this girl orphan, uh, played the orphan was a, a fully grown 30 plus year old woman who had a dwarfism and she was basically a psychopathic killer <laughs> um, <laughs> who basically wanted to play mommy and take over the family and steal the dad. Okay. Well, so there are a lot of shades of this uh, in this movie. I was like halfway through or, you know, a quarter of the way through, I, I looked at my, my wife and I said, this is just a paint by numbers recreation. Like a lot of these other prequel kind of movies are. And then there was a twist that was, frankly, I was just blown away by um, so yeah, it was, uh, and Julia Stiles is in it and she's great in anything. So, uh, check out orphan first kill. If you're into it. Uh, we also saw level 16 on Netflix. Uh, this is a low budget movie about a bunch of, um, young women who wake up in this dystopian society. Um, and they're being trafficked by the mafia. Yeah. Um, so it's a very, you know, it's a very low budget. I think it, 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 it does it what they're trying to do kind of science science fiction in kind of way very well in a very closed kind of uh ship in a bottle type of production. So yeah. uh check it out. It's low budget. I gave it a six out of ten, so it's not a bad watch. And then um right. and then we saw the Sandman on Netflix. And it is cool. That's all I can say for it. It's different. It's cool. It's based on uh, I think uh, Neil Gaiman I think he a comic book writer uh, has done a lot of really great stuff, but this is a Sandman from DC comics from back in the nineties, late eighties uh, graphic novel. And uh, it's visually different and cool. So Sandman gives me, I give it a thumbs up and I look forward to watching more of it. Awesome. I saw that. Uh, I saw that on Netflix um, and uh, kind of had it on the radar as something I might want to try. Yeah, try it. Uh, the wife likes it, so she's a good okay. barometer for that stuff. So Excellent. All right. Well, that's all we've watched. Once again, feel free to email us and let us know what you have in your queue. And right now it's time for us to get into some news. Skull Rock Podcast. Ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. Just announced this week, Dave, some of our friends from the show are now going to be celebrated as Disney Legends being inducted into the Disney Legends Pantheon for the 35th anniversary. That's awesome, that, isn't Dave? it? Oh. Congratulations it great- to Don Hahn and Chris Montan. Yes. We're part of uh, this expo's crop of Disney legend inductees. I love it. it. It's so great that the company honors those in the company that have really added to the fabric of the company and in pop culture, right? Absolutely. Along with those great names, uh, you know, um, Rob Coltrane. Have you ever worked with Rob? Or Imagineering or uh, set design? 
No. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I our paths have crossed. Yeah, he worked on Mickey's PhilharMagic, um, Muppet Vision 3D, Roger Rabbit's uh, cartoon spin. You, you know, I may I may have met him. Yeah. It seems to me like uh, maybe you may have crossed paths, but he retired in 2019. He... Uh, you know, had his hand in radio, uh, Radiator Springs Racers, Mickey's, uh, Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, and recent recent expansions to Tokyo Disney Resort. So, once again, great Imagineer there. And then you also have um, Robert Price, Bob Foster, uh, in the legal department of Walt Disney Studios. Uh, he was part of the secret Florida project acquisition of all that land. So, of course, you know, he's yeah, you know, they uh, D- Disney set up a bunch of shell companies and had you know key <laughs> employees heading those and they were out buying up all this land. And before anybody in central Florida knew what the hell was going on, Walt Disney had acquired, you know, a large swath of land uh, bigger than uh, Manhattan Island. Absolutely. Yeah. It's crazy. You know how that went together. I think that'd be impossible to do these days Yeah, uh, with all that stuff going on. Uh, you mentioned Chris Montan, you know, uh, he is the man. I uh, oversaw so much music for the, the, the TV, the motion picture side of things. You worked with Chris Montan. We've had uh, him on the show. We've had him as a guest. I mean, Chris is one of the nicest guys and just couldn't, couldn't be nicer to deal with. He has worked on everything you love uh, out there as you're listening to this 45 musical Academy Award noms and 16 Academy Awards for best original songs and best original score categories. I mean, the guy is a living legend. He Uh, really is. And then, of course, Don Hahn, everybody's favorite Renaissance man outside of Dave Bossard here from this podcast. (laughs) Um, Don Don is fantastic. He's a great friend and a great friend of the show. Uh, he's been on numerous times, uh, uh, you know, doing uh, not only talking about his contribution to various films, but uh, also he most recently stepped in to talk about Ron Miller. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and he has a documentary that's out in PBS uh, talking about some great artists and such. So, you know, he's still making movies. He's still producing stuff. He's still on Disney being involved in that. And uh, making content for Disney Plus, like the Howard documentary that was recently uh, featured on Disney Plus. So uh, definitely look at that. Um, Doris Harden, uh, who joined Walt Disney Imagineering in 1979 as a junior engineer uh, designer, uh, were included in projects like Epcot, Tokyo Disneyland, Disneyland Paris, Disney Cruise Lines. So she is there with all of those great design elements that have uh, I guess I have been poured into the park. So congratulations to her as well. Uh, then we've got the celebrity wing, right? So uh, we've got Tracy Ellis Ross from Blackish is in there. Ellen Pompeo from Grey's Anatomy. You've got uh, Adele Dazeem. I'm just joking. It's Adina Menzel. <laughs> uh, let it go, you know, from, from uh, for, basically has been on everything. She's in Ralph Breaks the Internet too. Frozen, of course. Uh, let's see here. You also have Josh Gad in there, Anthony Anderson, Anthony Anderson, Jonathan Groff. So we've got a lot of uh, people from frozen, uh, in there. And of course, how can we forget, uh, Chadwick Boseman, um, who played T'Challa, uh, the black Panther in the Marvel films, uh, rest in peace. And then Kristen, uh, Kristen Bell, by the way, uh, just so you know, Dave, if there was a story of my wife and I's life, 
Uh, Kristen Bell is going to play my wife, Kristen. Okay. <laughs> That's Fantastic. what she said. She said we, that. We'll make a note of that. We'll make a note of that. But uh, <laughs> there you go. the Disney Legend Award is going to be happening during the D23 Expo happening in just a few weeks. So that's crazy. It's happening just a few weeks, huh? I know. It's so, it's mind blowing. Dave, we talked about music. We talk about music a lot here on the show. Um, and the Beatles get back. You know, I I feel like I don't think Beatles fans can ever get enough Beatles. Am I right? You're the hugest Beatles fan. I, I, listen, I'm a big Beatles fan. I I agree with you. Yeah, I'll watch. I, you know, if it, if it's something about the Beatles, I'll watch it. If there was a way, um that extra footage that peter jackson had would you watch it then of course i would of course you would I, yeah i'd rewatch it yeah but you know something the thing that kills me is that when you do such an epic documentary as peter jackson did with the beatles get back it's like it's a multi-part documentary put all the footage in put all the footage in don't hold back yeah just put all the footage in let us see it uh, you know first time out I feel you know, the this same business way. of, you know, we're going to put in extended footage. It's all marketing. It's a big marketing ploy. Yeah. But, you know, they are uh, saying here they won't release an extended cut. I don't understand why. That to me is money on the table that they're leaving yeah. for all the wrong reasons. I, I feel like, you know, sometimes people can smell a cash grab. This particular thing is just fan service. So you went through the footage, you went through the uh, the process of getting it remastered and digitized and 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 recut. Just put the rest of it in a separate, you know, just separate the addendum to the documentary and say this is the additional footage. Weave it together however you will, but the Beatles fans will watch it. Just do it. Absolutely. Look, Peter Jackson, the Beatles documentary. You, that's all you need to say. You got me. I I'll see, I'll watch whatever you put together. Peter Jackson is a fantastic filmmaker. I mean, you know, uh, uh, his world war one documentary, they shall not grow old. I mean, incredible work that, that he and his team, uh, down at Weta did on that. It's just unbelievable, you know? And I thought the Beatles documentary again was fantastic. And, And by the way, you know, if you haven't watched the Beatles get back, you should, because there's so much footage in there about that rooftop concert. The last time the Beatles got together, uh, I mean, stuff I had never seen in all the years that I've been, you know, consuming Beatles documentaries and, you know, everything about the Beatles. Yeah. The quote from Peter Jackson says, Disney and Apple are reluctant because they say, and they may be quite right. There's no market for uh, any more for extended cuts, but there's five to six hours of fantastic material that we didn't include. And I don't want it to go back into the vaults for f- the next 50 years. Let's say it's a conversation that's happening, but it's not necessarily definitive one at this point. Just do it. Disney, Apple, just do it. Uh, you know something? Uh, and when you're talking Apple, you're not talking Apple uh, phones. Oh, Apple, Apple records, records or Apple core, Apple, core, right? Yeah. Apple core. Right. That's okay. it. Yeah. The Beatles, um, the Beatles record label. So, um, yeah, just go ahead and do it. And I, I, I tell you, there is a market for extended cuts. Um, you yeah, know, it's called Zach, streaming. Yeah. Zach Schneider <laughs> clearly, uh, Warner brothers, by the way, is revisiting that it's not in the news, but they're revisiting going back to the Schneider verse, but you know, that, 
Snyder cut of uh, Justice League made a lot of a lot of money for for uh, HBO Max when they were doing it, and um, I would say I would venture to say that an extended cut of Multiverse of Madness or uh, Spider Man uh, Homecoming or whatever Spider Man Multiverse uh, movie uh, they'll make money in Star Wars as well. So just go ahead and do it. You know, absolutely, absolutely, I agree with you. Uh, so the Wednesday trailer from Adam's Family features features the uh the teen and uh wow how modern is she it's pretty cool it's right fantastic i loved this trailer this this show called wednesday based on wednesday from the adams family uh and directed by the way by tim burton he's going to be on netflix and it looks fantastic yeah. You know, but I would say that about anything Tim Burton does because I love Tim Burton's uh, aesthetic and I love Tim Burton's uh, films. Jenna Ortega plays Wednesday and she's great. Um, I've seen her in a bunch of stuff The Babysitter, I've seen her in Scream uh, in 2022. So she is great. Um, and I've seen a lot of her movies, Studio 666 as well. Uh, she's, she's great. And she's been in the TV show you on Netflix. So yeah, go ahead and check out the trailer and, you know, Tim Burton's on it. We're all over it. Yeah. I I mean, it's a great trailer. It looks like it's going to be a great show. I can't wait for it to drop. I can't either. She's great. And, uh, when, when is the, uh, the show dropping? I'm trying to see here. It's funny. Usually they put that information at the bottom of the, of the article. (laughs) It's not even on here. Yeah, uh, they don't say, do they? Yeah. Well, I guess it's got to be coming out soon. You know? I, I hope so. I hope so, too. It's for us. Yeah. Um, so, anyway. So, hey, Dave. Who was your, your favorite Disney princess? Oh. I'm putting you on the spot. Uh, honestly, I, yeah. I probably have to say Snow White because it was the first. She was the first. Well, yeah. hey, well, we can celebrate the her as well as the pantheon of Disney princesses because Disney princesses, princess world or world princess week rather uh, happens is right. It happens right now as the show is dropping uh, to the 27th. So you can check out the ultimate park celebration. It's being launched uh, by Brandy. Of course, we talked about Brandy with the uh, her version of uh, Rogers and Hammerstein's Wonderful World of Disney Cinderella. Uh, mm-hmm. We talked about which is going to be in Disney um, Disney Plus. So be on the lookout for that. But uh, there's who's, all... who's your favorite princess? You know, I think Belle. Uh, probably followed closely by Tiana. Okay. And maybe after that, maybe Moana, maybe, I don't know. I mean, they're all great. I mean, I I like, I like them all great. They're Um, they're all strong women. They're all strong women. I I really do. I mean, we saw uh, princess. It's funny. You know, we have the Disney princesses uh, in our daughter's room and I always go, it's like, who is that? Who's wearing the green dress? Oh, that's Tiana. So now she's, she's playing the game of, you know, I recognize the princesses. So when we go to Disney, she can recognize them. But if you happen that's to be going to, uh, yeah, if you happen to be going uh, to the parks, that is awesome. I have to say, oh, she she loves them all, and uh, you know, there's a there's a place for you to check out all that stuff that's happening at the parks, including uh, many legendary Disney artists uh, doing signings and artwork there at Disneyland and Walt Disney World this week, along with some awesome food celebrating Princess Week. So please check that out. And did you know about the uh, the heroes? Warrior games that are happening at uh, Walt Disney World. Have you heard about this? 
No, I have not. So this week, um, heroes come from athletes from all over uh, the United States military, Team Canada, Team Ukraine, and celebrated as honorary grand marshals in a parade down Main Street, USA, over there at Magic Kingdom. Every athlete of, that's uh, performing in these games took torches. They had family members out there being saluted there in the courtyard there at uh, the flag ceremony. So it was really cool um, what was going on there. And, of course, you can check out all these events happening through the 28th, so earlier this week, and check out dodwarriorgames.com for more information. And I think uh, they're going to have some highlights there on Disney and ESPN. So be on the lookout for that. It's always great to celebrate uh, our proud warriors, right? Absolutely. Now you uh, sent me this little tidbit about investor pressures Disney to spin off ESPN and combine Hulu and Disney+. Plus. Yeah, this is, this. this is an investor named Dan Loeb. Uh, who uh, heads up Third Point, uh, an investment firm. And uh, he's taken a new stake. And when I say new stake, he had a big stake in Disney uh, a few years back. Uh, and then he sold it, made a bundle of dough. Uh, and he's back. He's got a billion-dollar stake in the company. He sent Bob Chapek a letter. He's urging uh, Disney to spin off ESPN as a standalone sports channel. And uh, he's also uh, pressing for some cost cutting as well as the acquisition of the one third of Hulu that Disney doesn't own, which is owned by Comcast, uh, Universal NBC uh, or NBC Universal, however you want to call it. So he's pushing that the company buy Hulu. And I think the company should buy the rest of Hulu so that they own it 100 percent. Yeah. Um, I think that would be a smart thing to do. And he's telling, you know, he's telling Disney they should do it sooner rather than later because contractually they have to do it um, uh, by 2024 yeah. uh, because uh, Comcast contractually has to unwind its 33% stake in the streaming service. So buying it sooner rather than later is probably better for the company from a financial standpoint Spinning off ESPN, I don't know. I mean, it, you know, there's there there's a pros and cons to this, but uh, you know, Disney can spin it off as a standalone company. It will actually benefit the shareholders because shareholders will get uh, shares of the standalone company, and Disney can maintain control of that company if they want to as a separate entity. Um, so you know there there's definitely some benefits to that uh and it would allow the espn standalone company to get into things like sports betting and things like that that disney probably shouldn't get involved in you know what i mean yeah that's been an ongoing discussion i think right you know? yeah and um i guess sure why not might as well you know if they have some type of control or or not i'm, I'm not really sure how the, that all works but um yeah. i do believe though that live sports is so valuable to a streaming service because there is no other type of um there's no other way to really get sports unless it's live right i right. mean so there's there's a lot of value in it um but i do see their point i guess uh, we'll find out really soon because they need to get off the pot really quick and make that deal well they need do to do something you know because uh you know look uh, he, I, I, I think he's correct. Dan Loeb uh, of Third Point Investments. I think he's correct in refreshing 
the the board of directors and getting some uh some new new blood on the board absolutely um and uh certainly i think there is some places that they can do some cost cutting but again you know this is disney there's some legacy businesses in there you can't just cut willy-nilly i think that they have to be very um uh surgical about it you know as far as uh, cost cutting, but there's certainly a lot of, there's a lot of stuff in that company, legacy businesses that they could combine into its own unit and uh, create an ecosystem uh, that would allow them to exploit uh, uh, some of the classic material, I think more, uh, 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 more efficiently, if you will, sure. and, and come up with some programs uh, that are more fan centric that will generate revenue. Absolutely. Know? Yeah. I and mean, the 30 for 30 series is great. Um, you need to check that out on ESPN. A lot of those documentaries are so well done. Yeah. So uh, if you're into sports, definitely check that out, but yeah. uh, we'll only see only time will tell. And we'll be the first to let you know here on skull rock podcast. And That's now right. it's time for our great friend, Jake Friedman waiting in the green room. Let's go. Let's do it. Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. Well, Al John, once again, we have a fantastic guest here at the Skull Rock Podcast. We've got Jake S. Friedman, who's an author and Disney historian. And his latest book, which was just released a few weeks ago, is The Disney Revolt, The Great Labor War of Animation's Golden Age. And I have to tell you, A, well, first off, Jake, welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> Glad to and, be here. And, and I have to say, you know, I read this book cover to cover, Jake. It showed up last week and I tore through it. It was such a great read. It's so in-depth. Congratulations on the book. And I have to say, like, how did this book come about? And I, and I would say that in the context of, could you let our audience know a little bit about yourself, you know, cause you're a professor at NYU and the animation department. So just talk a little bit about that and how this book came about. Sure. Sure. Uh, I've been a fan of animation history my entire life. One of my first Books on animation history I got when I was 12 called Aladdin, The Making of an Animated Film. Did you work on that on that film, Dave? I did. So that was written by John Colhane. And uh, when it was time to go to college, I noticed that um, John Colhane taught history of animation at NYU. And he was one of the reasons why I decided to go to NYU to study animation. They have a really great film and TV animation program. So I did. And I started my first semester in John Colhane's class, who you knew as well. I think you were one of his guest speakers that he brought in one time. Uh, that, that is that that is correct, and uh, and and I, I have a very funny and long story about how I got to know John Kane Maker uh, John uh, Colhane, uh, but uh, I I'll leave that for another day. But he he was a wonderful guy, just wonderful. And I'm just in case some of your viewers aren't familiar with him, you know he as you remember was just a big overgrown kid, even in his sixties and just so full of life and love and joy. And if any of your listeners are familiar with the rescuers, right? He was caricatured by Milt Call as Mr. Snoops. 
And in Fantasia 2000, he was caricatured by the great Eric Goldberg as Flying John in Rhapsody in Blue, that, that guy with the mustache who just is gripped with joy and the need for escape and freedom and just flies in the air. And that was John. So I just kept taking his class year after year as a TA. It was the only way I could sit in on his class. I just adored him. He always had these great stories and he always led from a place of joy. So after I graduated, he did what a lot of professors do. They invite you back to talk about your you know, burgeoning career in the field. I'd worked on a couple of cartoon shows at that time. And after I did my little spiel in front of his class, this was, I was 26 then, I think. I sit down and John says, Jake Friedman, everyone. And everyone gives me a round of applause. And he says, and Jake Friedman will be writing the book on Art Babbitt. And I was like, what? What? Like, this was not a question. This was not prepped beforehand. He just announced to the class that I'd be writing a book about Art Babbitt. And he said, you will, won't you? And I didn't know this at the time, but John had been in touch with Art Babbitt's widow, Barbara Babbitt. And she wanted the memory and legacy of her husband to be remembered. And John recommended me because I had taken his class and loved animation history. And it took a while to warm up to the idea of writing the story of a legendary animator. But I kind of got rolling maybe in 2008 and I took my first flight out to Los Angeles. I live in New York and I visited Barbara who was I think like 85 at the time and she was just warm and wonderful. And every year I would visit her and dig through her, her personal archives because she saved all of Art Babbitt's stuff, his photos, his home movies from the thirties, his documents, his Disney IDs, the letters that he got. Like she knew that her late husband was important and she just kept everything in a giant, she called it a cubby hole, but it was kind of the size of a garage. And it was like King Tut's tomb every time I visited that place. Wow. That's, that's how I got started. And this book was going to be a biography about Art Babbitt. And it had to, it had to change shape a little bit. And I had to pivot uh, because after many years of trying to sell a book with an agent to publishers about Art Babbitt and no one wanting a book about someone that no one has ever heard of generally. Um, I had a meeting with, I, I met a great author named Mindy Aloff. She's the author of a book called Hippo in a Tutu, which is all about dance in Disney films. I met her at a biographer's convention and I was, I had no business being there, but she was very kind to me. And after a conversation with her, I realized I, I had to change the scope of the book and not make it about Art Babbitt, but make it about the strike, which meant bringing Walt into the picture and art into the picture and make it into a story about two people and how they came to blows and what happened at the strike itself. And that was the book that finally, you know, got picked up and published. And, and, and I, I totally can 
understand that because, you know, uh, having done the book on Claude Coates, uh, there was quite a number of people who were like, well, who's Claude Coates and how can we sell this book? And I'm sure you were met with those kinds of comments about who is Art Babbitt. Nobody knows who Art Babbitt is. How could we sell this book? We can't do this. Right. I mean, right. those kinds of comments, which is really kind of a shame because, you know, you're you're going into a business where you're pitching an idea to somebody who really may not have any knowledge of that area, you right. know, and, and, and so there, there it's, it's a subjective, um, uh, view of what you're pitching. And so it's easy for them to say no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you want to say to them, this guy is important and he did so much that shaped animation and shaped Disney. And once you just begin it, you'll see how it's important. You'll see how people will love it. You'll see how people will, will be gripped by it. But, you know, being an animation fan myself, my whole life, um, I found myself kind of like stuck in my own little zone, not really understanding how little about animation history or behind the scenes, the general public knows, or maybe even is interested in, or knows that they could be interested in. Um, and really it was when I started teaching animation history and started working in front of a room full of students and learning how to communicate as a teacher, as an instructor to college students, did I, kind of figure out the language of the book because you don't want to talk down to people, but you want to introduce interesting ideas to people. And for the aficionados who are reading the book, like myself and the big fans who know some of these names and know some of these events, um, you want to introduce new ideas and build on what they already know. Uh, my goal was not to alienate anyone. I wanted to write a book that both aficionados and the general public would both enjoy. And, and I think you absolutely hit the mark with this book. Uh, I, I have to say, uh, you know, look, I, I'm, I'm deep into the Disney history and it, it was a joy to read this book because there were names in there, not only names that were familiar to me and that I knew who they were, but there were names of people who I knew I personally knew. Uh, and, and so that was really kind of uh, interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, uh, when you were writing this, uh, you know, this is an 80,000 word book. Um, but did you, did you overshoot that mark? <laughs> I know it's kind of a loaded question and, and I, and I sort of know the answer, but, but I, I had to ask it. Well, the original draft was 120,000 words. It was about the, like 50% longer than what the book actually is. And my publisher told me that I had to uh, winnow it down. And that was a long, arduous process because how do you, you know, kill your darlings like that? You know, there were so many interesting bits that I just had to strike out or shorten. Um, and I had, I had a lot of help. I had written a lot of articles in, in magazines for years in, on an animation magazine. Uh, but it was an editor at um, uh, American history magazine. I wrote basically a four page version of this book of like an article about the strike for American history magazine, which is and, really like a, a synopsis. Yeah. Yeah. Like that was my idea to sort of get people interested and maybe get it like to plant a seed 
in the public's consciousness a little bit, hoping that someone would read that article and come at me with a contract and say, write this book. That didn't happen, but it was a good way to organize my thoughts. So the editor of this um, magazine gave me some great tips. And the one that I kept going back to was just say what needs to, to be said and nothing more. So that meant like some background stuff on Mickey Mouse had to go. Um, I found like some origin stuff on how Mickey was created that straight out of like magazines from 1931, 32 that I thought were really novel that hadn't been like printed before that had to go. There were, there was stuff about like Dave Hilberman and Bill Teitla that had to go. Um, which, which, I, which I have to say, I, I was a little bit sad about uh, because when I got to the end of the book, I was hoping to get just a little bit more on what happened to some of those guys. And, uh, and, and I, you know, and I, I mentioned this be, before we started the interview uh, when we were chatting in the green room, uh, <laughs> I, I, I just, you know, I, I felt like, wow, I really wanted to know a little bit more about Bill Teitler. He's a fascinating guy and deserves a really good book done on him. Yeah, absolutely. And he also died too young, I think in, in 1968, if if I'm not mistaken. And he was called like the Michelangelo of animation and it's still considered great. Um, And for that, Dave, I have to plead what Lin-Manuel Miranda pleaded when people said that they wanted to know more about what happened to the Schuyler sisters after the Hamilton play was done. He says, you can just Google it. That's what Google's for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know something, I, I have to say, you know, if, if you were starting to look for another project to do after this one, uh, Bill Teitler, my friend, Bill Teitler, there, there's a whole story there because mm-hmm. he, he really was the Michelangelo of animation. And, and I almost feel like he died young because he was a broken individual after the strike. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of people think that too. The strike was so visceral, like it really cut people to the core and he tried, you know, he left Disney. He and Art Babbitt were the only two super top animators who went out on strike. There were other animators, not just assistants and in-betweeners, but there were animators too. But they were like B B level animators. Well, and I don't want to, I, I don't want to say that in a nasty way, but they weren't the top dogs, you they know, the they, they dogs. weren't Walt's nine old men. They weren't Freddie Moore. You know, they weren't right. those guys. There were other animators that were just, you know, regular players. Yeah. Yeah. No, the nine old men did not go out on strike. The other top animators, uh, the people of Babbitt's cohort, who people like Freddie Moore, Norm Ferguson, Dick Lundy, these guys did not go out on strike with him. And I go into the book to sort of look into their psyche a little bit and try to explore what made them choose to, to stay in the studio. And it looked like they were all feeling that the, the new cohort of which the nine old men were, were a part with the exception of Les Clark, who was there since the, since the early days, all those other art school graduates like Frank Thomas and Ali Johnson and Ward Kimball and Milk Call, and all of those guys who had gone to art school and came just a couple of years after Babbitt, they were t- 
taking over. They were becoming, they were kind of um, making the original cohort obsolete. And that kind of led to Freddie Moore's alcoholism. And it led to Norm Ferguson kind of uh, bumping heads with Walt later on and being fired in, in the early fifties. Um, and, and those guys wanted to really protect their job uh, and, and remain in good favor in Walt's eyes. So Art Babbitt had a sort of a bigger picture in mind. He wanted to sort of uh, fight for the good of the company and the good of everyone. You know, I, I found it interesting because at, at the time that uh, uh, Babbitt was first sort of introduced to the idea of a screen cartoonist guild mm-hmm. or union, um, uh, he was he was sort of the top dog at the studio. He yeah. was he was doing you know he had done uh, uh, you know Abner from uh, Country Cousin you know where he falls into the martini glass and gets drunk and you know he was wowing Walt with some real personality animation and 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 he was being paid you know, he was, he was getting paid a lot of money. Plus he was getting bonuses, uh, that for the day was a tremendous amount of money. I mean, he was, he was living large as they say. Uh, and I, I wonder, and, and maybe you can explain this. Why did he take on this, the, this mantle of, uh, of, uh, leadership in forming a cartoonist guild? That is really what the book's about. I, you know, why would someone who is in such a catbird seat, the amount of money he was earning then is equivalent to about a $200,000 a year salary today mm-hmm. doing animation. He's doing the best animation in the world. Like Disney's doing the best of that craft anywhere on the planet. And Babbitt is right on the ground floor. So he's part of where it's like being in NASA in like 1969. He's like making history and he knows it. But what makes him want to sacrifice or at least put to risk all of that wealth and all of that prestige? It starts because he he grew up, he came of age really in New York, in New York City in the 20s. He's from the Midwest as is Walt, right? right? But when he was 16, he and his family moved to New York City because his father has an awful spinal injury and it's the best way for them to sort of like succeed. And in New York City, you know, it's a, it's a hotbed of activism in the 20s and early 30s. Um, and he's, his parents are also immigrants. Uh, he, I drop all of these examples of the kind of like uh, pro-union and um, uh, I guess proletariat influences that he's having in New York before he moves over to Los Angeles in 1932, um, including having an art teacher named Raphael Sawyer, who uh, is, is famous for doing really exquisite portraits of the lower class. So Raphael Sawyer is one of his influences here in New York. 
Um, so he's, he's pro-union. I talk about how his mom is kind of an activist as well. So he has this in his, like, in his blood. Walt Disney, for reasons that our listeners may or may not know, is very protective of what he has because he had lost what he has a couple times already. Um, and he, he needs to have control because he's, he's coming from a place of fear. Um, and for, for reasons going back to his childhood, he has a, a separate kind of fear set aside for socialism. One reason is which of, of which is that there was a bomb that went off when he was 16 years old that almost killed him. And the, and the, it was a terrorist bombing of a post office he was working at. And the main suspect of this bomb was a, a group called the IWW, uh, which was a, a big kind of like uh, terrorist socialist group at the time. They're not terrorists anymore, but at the time they were like um, uh, sabotaging right. they, farm equipment and setting farms on fire. They were radicals. Total total radicals. And, and, and Walt's father also read a socialist newspaper. So, yeah. so, so Walt was exposed to that as a child. Yeah. Yeah. Walt learned how to draw by copying the cartoons in his father's socialist newspaper. Yeah. So maybe separating from, I kind of make this, you know, between the lines argument that in breaking away from his dad, he's breaking away from his dad's politics as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I thought it was, uh, what was really interesting though, that, um, uh, art was at the top of his game was in uh, the good graces of Walt. Um, I mean, had he continued on that trajectory, he very well could have been one of the nine old men. Oh yeah. The name nine old men didn't come about until the late forties. So after right. Sure. Yeah. And it's but- just, you know, but I, I mean, yes. I mean, Walt was tongue in cheek by naming his top nine animators, the nine old men, the way uh, Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, uh, looked at the Supreme Court uh, at the time and dubbed them the nine old men. Right. Uh, so and, uh, you know, I think this was a tongue in cheek thing. But in, in that context, uh, I mean, Art had the animation chops uh, and was at the top of his game to be part of that group. Mm-hmm. But, but, but he started to seize up a little bit uh, is what I was gathering as I was reading the book that his animation started getting a little on the stiffer side and he yeah. started relying too much on live action reference. Yeah. Yeah. And it was interesting to hear him actually say that in his own words. And Walt says that too. Walt says that in his testimony in the 1942 court case, when Babbitt sues the Disney company. Yes. So Walt says that Babbitt was getting stiffer. He was relying too much and he kind of had like stage fright as an animator and Babbitt agrees. (laughs) Babbitt says he, he didn't agree in the court case, but he said it years later and uh, he referenced that in um, the months prior that that he was kind of seizing up and and leaning too much, like rotoscoping. And you can see, by the way, if your view, if your listeners don't know, rotoscoping is actual tracing the live action reference rather than just using it for inspiration. Yeah. So, and, and by the way, Babbitt, you, you know, you write this in the book. He's got a motion picture camera. He's got a home movie camera and he's filming his friends 
acting out and he's he's introduced character analysis action analysis to the disney studio artists right yeah yeah so babbitt i put babbitt as the number one animator of the golden age for several reasons so not only is he like a great lead animator who did the wicked queen and snow white and geppetto and pinocchio and the mushrooms and fantasia so that already puts him in a very small cohort but on top of that he was basically the guy who developed goofy the way freddie moore developed mickey mouse and the disney style and the way dick lundy figured out the key to donald duck's personality and the way norm ferguson became the Pluto specialist. So that puts Babbitt in an even smaller cohort. Okay, but what puts Babbitt as numero uno, (laughs) in my opinion, and I hope I can, you know, uh, indulge myself here, is that you're absolutely right, Dave. He introduced live action reference to the animators. um, And that kind of action analysis had never been done. He introduced character analysis. So taking... Um, method acting strategies and dissecting Goofy's personality in an essay. That was the key to personality that Walt had been searching for. And that had never been done before. He had brought art, uh, art school techniques and art models and an art teacher to the animators in the studio. And that had never been done before. And, and I and I do I do want to point out I I kind of got a little bit of a chuckle out of this, but he started those after hour uh, drawing classes with nude models at his home. Yeah, and then when Walt got wind of it, he felt like it could be looked at you know uh, the wrong way, and 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 said, "Why don't you do it here at the studio, and we'll pay for the models." Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that was, that was sort of the impetus to start this sort of Disney art school within the studio. Yeah. And it's that art school that propelled Disney animation miles ahead of its competitors throughout the thirties. Exactly. And because you, when you look at a a studio like uh, uh, Terry tunes, uh, Paul Terry, uh, out of New York. Uh, he was just interested in just stringing a whole bunch of gags together and just banging it out and no retakes, no finessing the animation. He just wanted his guys to grind the stuff out. Right. And, yeah, uh, exactly. and, and, and that's, that was, you know, the bottom line for him. Whereas for Walt, it really was about quality and elevating the animation art form really to a fine art status in my mind which i think they they absolutely achieved uh on those early features yeah yeah if if art if 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 art was working in a vacuum in this way and walt wasn't interested it wouldn't have worked art had come from terry tunes he'd been there for a couple years in new york already which is convenient for me as the writer because i can compare his experience at terry tunes where they just threw gags together versus disney where Walt wanted solid story and wanted solid characters and had a story department, which was an insanely cool idea that no one else was doing. And it was also an expense because you have people just working on a story rather than a suitcase filled with index cards of jokes. So Walt, you know, has and deserves a lot of credit for that. And Walt deserves a lot of credit for having, um, animation tests and using his movieolas 
to let animators experiment and try new things. So that made Art really excited once he got there to just to to woo his friend Bill Tidelow over. He said, we're going to advance as artists miles ahead of the Terry Tunes crew by the time, like we will be in a month in our skills uh, where you will be in a year because you we're know, constantly refining. I, I, I thought it was interesting because you pointed out in the book uh, that after Snow White and the Seven Dwarves was released to theaters to overwhelming success, I mean, it just blew the doors off of anything that ever came before it and was the highest grossing film of that year. And all of those, you know, the accolades that he got, there was a little bit of a gap between that and Pinocchio. And uh, Fleischer's slipped in Gulliver's Travels uh, as a feature release. And it was interesting that it was sort of deflating for the public and for the critics to go from this super quality Snow White feature to Gulliver's Travels where it, the characters didn't quite have the personalities uh, and the the actual art form wasn't as refined as it was in the Disney picture. Yeah. Yeah. You know who introduced me to that idea that people went in to see the new Disney movie and they, and, and they walked out saying that Gulliver movie by Disney isn't all it's cracked up. <laughs> that was, that was John Colhane who told that story in a class and that stuck with me. And I thought, wow, in a world where there's only, like two animated features in existence, of course you're going to assume that this one is made by the guy who made the last one. And there's so many similarities. You know, you're taking a European fairy tale story, kind of, Jonathan Swift, but okay, fairy tale. And it's a musical. And you have like a realistic human interacting with a bunch of small cartoon characters. There's, and a lot of the artists and even some of the voice actors overlap. Like Pinto Kalvig is in both films. Seamus Colhane worked on both films. There's there, there are like, if you look at the credits, there may be like a dozen or so names that, that are in both films. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's unfortunate for Disney that Gulliver's travels um, deflated, as you said, perfect word, people's enthusiasm. And although that's not, that's not necessarily why Pinocchio didn't do as well, but it certainly didn't help. Yeah, but I, I mean, look, I to this day, I still feel as though Pinocchio uh, lost part of uh, the European uh, box office, so that that hurt its numbers. Yeah. You know, and I think we have to we have to acknowledge that because you know by uh, September of 1939, Nazi Germany had invaded Poland and gone into Belgium and Luxembourg. You know, so the the war was raging at that point, even though the u.s didn't get involved in world war ii until 1941 uh the effects of that war were already hitting disney in nine in late 1939 with the loss of box office uh, mm -hmm. out of europe and you know and i had always felt like it was about 30 percent of their revenue coming out of europe but uh you more succinctly put it it was higher than that it was like 40 45 percent of their revenue was coming from over in europe yeah, yeah, it was closer to 45%. Yeah. And, and no one knew. I mean, it wasn't until a couple of years later 
when, um, so Babbitt sued Walt twice at the same time, once for uh, being uh, unfairly fired, calling it discrimination for his union activity. And at the same time, he sued Walt for unpaid bonuses. And that bonus fiasco is another meaty part of the book, but he lost, Babbitt lost the, the, the case about the bonuses and the, the chief evidence in favor of Disney was they presented the record books, which clearly stated that Pinocchio and Fantasia lost a million dollars. Yeah. They lost money. Pinocchio and Fantasia lost a million dollars apiece. At that time. At that time. At that time. So a million dollars in 1940. And such classics. It's hard to imagine, but it, it, it was that that uh that lawsuit that revealed that information walt wasn't going around telling people maybe he wanted to keep the stockholders relaxed but there there may have been a different outcome of the strike had he leveled with his artists and said frankly that they were really hurting instead he there's a famous speech that he gave, you know, a couple months before the strike in February of 41. And in that speech, he basically is asking for people's loyalty and said, I worked really hard and I, uh, I, I believe in this medium, but he's not, he's not talking to them like man to man. You know, he's not, he's, he's just not leveling with them about, about the dire straits that the studio is in. And if he had, maybe things would have been different. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. But, you know, I sit there and, and look at like, you know, uh, by 1940, when Fantasia is being released, you know, France has already fallen to the to Nazi Germany, you know. So you Poland, France, uh, you know, you've got the Battle of Dunkirk and the Battle of Britain going on. So yeah. I can imagine that most of their European be, and, you know, Italy was already aligned with Nazi Germany. I, I could already imagine. Imagine that the majority of their European revenues were gone at that point, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and had they not been, had the war not breaking out, uh, broken out, I think that, um, you know, those films probably would have returned a profit. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. Who knows? I mean, what an interesting par- parallel universe that would have been yeah. to think like what would have happened. I mean, Maybe there wouldn't have been any package films. There maybe there wouldn't have been any like there definitely wouldn't have been any Saludos Amigos or Three Caballeros. You know, I, and I also I, I I know you didn't really touch on this much, but uh, I think the studio moving from the Hyperion complex to the new studio in Burbank, mm-hmm. um, uh, it, it distanced Walt from uh, from the staff. Mm. Uh, they weren't as intimate, uh, anymore. Uh, you know, I read accounts of, uh, you know, Ward and, uh, uh, Freddie Moore feeling like the new studio was a little too sterile for them. Yeah. Uh, and you know, again, they're not seeing the boss as much and there's a hierarchy and the place has expanded, you know, going from, you know, five, 600 artists up to 1200 artists, you know, and it's a big organization. So I, I mean, certainly I think what happened with this strike, uh, you can easily lay blame, uh, on both sides of the fence. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, definitely for like the like the the, the ugliness that erupted through that. Yeah. Um, all of that, you know, I feel like it could have been avoided had there just been a a, a dialogue and some compromise at the beginning. Um, and that's really all that Art Babbitt and his fellow pro-union folks were looking for just just to be heard and to have their grievances listened to um and unfortunately the vice president gunther lessing refused to listen to them and refused to negotiate and kind of worked underhandedly to create more barriers so that the union would not have a foothold in the studio. You know, I, I agree with you. I think, I think after reading your book, I felt like Gunther Lassing, uh, who was the vice president legal counsel for the company at the time, uh, gave Walt some bad advice. Uh, I think he was, uh, he contributed a lot to sort of throwing gasoline on the fire as it were. Yeah. Yeah. There was a photo that I wasn't able to put in the book because I, I was given a quota of images for the book, but there was a, um, a, uh, an effigy of Gunther Lessing that yeah. was paraded around. I'm sure you've seen this. It's not hard to find. You can, you, again, you wrote, yeah, you wrote, you wrote about it though. Yeah. Yeah, I did. So the, the, so the strikers knew like this wasn't an effigy of Walt. This wasn't an effigy of Roy. This was an effigy of Gunther Lessing that they paraded under a French revolution style guillotine that they hung up on a tree this was like, he was the enemy to the strikers. Yeah. Um, and after the strike, one of Roy's uh, management def uh, deputies wrote a letter to him that I uh, summed up and took some quotes from in the book, basically saying that Gunther Lessing should not have led any union negotiations at all. Right. Um, and and that the personnel department was now basically a like a witch hunt department trying to find the ex strikers so they could fire them, um, and that this was a time for reparations. This was a time to heal, you know, like Lincoln after the Civil War. Yeah. Did Did you feel as though uh, uh, after this was all said and done that there was sort of a a a, a list? You know, I'd always heard rumblings about, you know, at the end of each project, Walt would go to his file cabinet and pull out his, his list and say, okay, get rid of these couple of people now. And he sort of slowly purged all of the sort of strikers and, and, and the, the real rabble rousers out of the studio over years. So um, I'll answer that with this um, <laughs> diplomatically, right? <laughs> well, and also truthfully, also truthfully, <laughs> the person in charge of that is the personnel director, and his name is Hal Adelquist, Harold, but people called him Hal. He was actually uh, one of Babbitt's groomsmen when he married Marge Belcher, who's now Marge Champion, the late great Marge Champion, who was the model for Snow White. So. Right. His wife and, 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 and Babbitt's wife were good friends, so he was a groomsman at Babbitt's wedding. But he's also the head of the personnel department, and he was the, the, the assistant director of Snow White. He was just all over the studio. Um, and he, during the strike, actually before the strike, he was the person that the non-strikers or the, the pro-Walt people would go to to report that they saw so-and-so walk into a union meeting. 
oh, I saw so-and-so walk into a union meeting and Hal Alquist, the personnel director, would take note of this. uh, Ward Kimball writes about this in his diary. Um, So after the strike, Hal Adelquist, so the story goes, the personnel department run by Hal Adelquist had two different files, one for strikers, one for non-strikers. Okay, so that's the story. And, And it's not... And people, again, wanted to please Walt, and they wanted Walt to avoid any unnecessary stress. So people would say to Art Babbitt, once he came back to the studio, try to avoid Walt. (laughs) Please don't be walking around interacting with Walt. Everyone was very eager to please and maybe protect Walt and thereby protect their own jobs. So is this true? Did this really happen? Well, as a person who's writing, yes, a good narrative story, but also a piece of scholarly work, I want to triangulate my research, right? I want to find that stories like this have actual back. There were lots of great stories that I heard that I could not put in this book because I couldn't verify them. Sure. Um, but were the strikers and non-strikers separated? Well, I went, I, I had the, the great fortune of meeting Don Lusk, who was one of the animators who went out on strike. I think he was 101 at the time. Sharp as a tack, he has since passed away. His wife, Margie, was the assistant in the personnel department. And he said, so she did not go on strike, but she was kind of like reporting from the inside. And she said that uh, to, to, to Don Lusk, and Don told me that it was her job she, as she was tasked to do to separate the strikers from the non-strikers. Okay, that's very interesting. So now we're hearing it from Don, secondhand. In the John Canemaker collection at the NYU Bopes Library, where John Canemaker, the great animation historian, has donated like piles and piles of his research materials. Among them are about 12 um, employee evaluations and if, and their Xeroxes. And John told me just last week that he started back when Dave Smith was in charge and Dave Smith had just like an open door policy. and just like sending him all of this stuff. Right. Definitely stuff you cannot access today. Correct. If you're an outsider. And those employee evaluations are really like, like nasty <laughs> and mean and really judgy of, of these animators. Oh, this person is a slacker. This person is a whiner, but above the photo of each of each employee, you can see faintly written in pencil, the word striker or the word Don striker. So that's a long answer to your very short question. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know something, I mean, the proof is in the pudding because when you look at all of the sort of uh, uh, guys that were in the leadership, they were all gone. I mean, by 1950, a lot of those guys were out of there. Yeah. You know, I mean, Babbitt was gone. Hilber- Hilberman was gone. Uh, Tyler, you know, all of those guys were out of the studio. Yeah. Yeah, I have. um in 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 my book, I have a uh, what do you call it? A um, what's the word I'm looking for? 
not not an epilogue, but a sort of yeah. You, know, you you do have an epilogue at the back of the book. Yeah, no, I certainly yeah. yeah but oh gosh, you see, I'm I wrote it and and I don't even know what I what oh an appendix. There yeah, we go. The appendix. The appendix of of all the strikers of the Disney strike, paying homage to all of them, and I and I note which ones remained at the studio after like 1950. And you can see that there aren't that many, definitely not many proportionally. I, I, there's maybe like 10% or less of them. That stuck uh, around. No, even less, maybe 5%. So there are about 330 names in that, in that appendix, list of these Disney yeah. strikers. And maybe like out of those 330, maybe um, 10 or so stuck around, including people who ended up like building very successful careers there, like, like ex Antesio. Right. Um, and, and Don Lusk, although Don Lusk did eventually get fired, I think in 1964, um, like he, he didn't retire from Disney, but there were a handful and even a but, couple people who became Disney legends of the strikers, but definitely the vast minority. And, and and you mentioned Disney Legends. I I, I think it's appropriate that we uh, we mentioned that uh, uh, that Art Babbitt did get Disney Legend status. Oh yeah, uh, all, albeit fifty something years after the strike. Yeah, yeah, in two thousand seven. Yeah, it was Roy. It was Roy E. Disney. Yeah. Who who um, he had maintained contact with Babbitt. There was a. The 50th anniversary of Snow White, and there's a photo of, from 1987 of you know little old Art Babbitt and you know tall lean Roy Disney at this reunion for Snow White. Yeah, and and it was the first time that that anyone from the Disney family had stood next to Art Babbitt in like, like 45 years, and Roy sent um, Art a VHS. Uh, Fantasia when Art was on his deathbed and and in 2007 it was Roy um, at least this is what Howard Green told me that it, it was like it was Roy's idea to honor Art Babbitt as a Disney legend and so of course you know Art was gone by then but his wife Barbara went up and accepted the, the award posthumously and uh, it was also the same day that Marge Champion who was Art, Art Babbitt's wife prior accepted her award. So Barbara likes to say that art had two wives at that ceremony. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, Jake, what, uh, what do you want the audience to know uh, about the book? Aside oh from what God. we've talked about, because well, I, I, I have to say it's, I mean, it's, it, it, it's a fantastic read. Anybody who's interested in Disney history, especially Disney animation history, that you got to read this book. <laughs> Thank you. I'll say that the people who already uh, know a little bit and the people who might call themselves aficionados, I would recommend having your finger in the, um, in, in the notes because I have 50 pages of notes that Although I, I wasn't able to put them in the text because I had this quota, I was able to negotiate some of them into the notes section. So the 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 book reads as a as a nonfiction narrative for the general audience, 
but keep referring back to these 50 pages of notes if you want to know who said what when there are some like general descriptions of animators. Um, because if you know who some of these people are, like Riley Thompson or like Bill Pete, you'll want to see who punched who in the face during the Disney. <laughs> That's awesome. So I, I will tell our listeners the Disney revolt, the great labor war of animations, golden age by Jake S. Friedman is published by the Chicago review press. It's available everywhere. Uh, and I would say, you know, you get it from your favorite book retailer. And if you do have a local independent bookstore, get, them to order the book in for you help support the independent bookstores as what we always say here at the skull rock podcast uh jake i have to say thank you it's been an absolute pleasure having you on our show uh and talking about this really i think little known or i I shouldn't say little known most people knew about the strike but the, the coverage and the depth that you've gone into this period of Disney history is really fantastic. I learned a lot from reading your book, uh, and I, I think I'm a pretty decent Disney historian, but you have some interesting information in there, not only about Disney and the Disney artists and the Disney strike and the establishment of the Screen Cartoonist Guild, but also about uh, labor unions and the labor union movement of the 1930s uh, and that period and some of the uh, less scrupulous individuals shall we say uh, people from the Al Capone gang and you know so there's a little of that peppered in here which makes it even more fascinating reading as far as I'm concerned because you know what's better than animation artists and gangsters right Mm -hmm. I mean you know Yeah, yeah. No, that's a big part of this book. And I had to really dig deep into some of that history as well. I I don't have a history of knowing, you know, mafia stuff or even really labor stuff. But um, seeing how the Capone gang was involved, I found to be a fascinating study. And I hope that I was able to convey that fascination in the book. Oh, you absolutely did. So, Jake, you've also got a website as well that talks about you and the animation you've done and being the uh, professor of art and animation, everything about you, including upcoming book projects, right? That's right. So if anyone is interested, Jake S. Friedman, F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N.com. That's all about me. Uh, And that has stuff on uh, the Disney revolt and also this Disney afternoon book that I've been working on since 2018 through Disney editions. We do not have a release date. Unfortunately, it was supposed to come out before COVID and then, you know, we know what happened there. So (laughs) it is definitely forthcoming. It is not canceled. So when I have updates, you can tune in to, I would say maybe Twitter might be the best and quickest way to get any updates about that. And if anyone wants to see some other or additional info about the Disney strike, I have a website just for this book, The Disney Revolt, and that's thedisneyrevolt.com. Okay, that's awesome. Well, thank you very much, Jake S. Friedman, author and Disney historian. Uh, And uh, thank you for being on the Skull Rock podcast. We look forward to having you back when you get your next book out. 
Thanks, Dave. I appreciate it. Your attention, please. <laughs> now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney. There's so much like behind the scenes of this that you that you can only know if you read this book. I love it. You know, and, and I have to say, I you know, I give I give Jake a lot of credit because he really delved into uh, a lot of archives to piece this entire story together. And he's done a really fantastic job of it. I highly recommend this book. It was a great read. I, you know, when it arrived, I picked it up and I, I, you know, I started reading the first couple pages and then I couldn't put it down. And, you know, I read the book in a couple of days, you know, start to finish. And uh you know, again, uh, definitely recommend it. We should have a, a link to it um, uh, on the show notes uh, without question. But it really shows you different facets of Walt Disney and Roy Disney, his brother, uh, and that whole period of time and how divisive that strike was. And, you know, the the artists who who sided with Walt and the artists who sided with the union and uh, how that all unfolded. Yeah, definitely a, a very realistic and gritty look into it for sure. Into an interesting time that kind of gets glossed over in the annals of history. So it really I, does. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, a lot of, a lot of information about Art Babbitt. I mean, clearly uh, Art was one of the uh, drivers of, uh, you know, forming the Screen Cartoonists uh, Guild and, uh, you know, deserves a lot of credit for that. Uh, but uh, he didn't have to do it. You know, because when you read the book, you find out, man, he was making a bundle of dough during the 30s. You got to remember the Depression and he was he was living large. You know, I mean, he had a valet and he was living in a beautiful home. And, you know, they you know, he 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 was just uh, he was living the life truth and and uh, and he didn't need to necessarily uh, spearhead this movement. But he did. Uh, and you find out why in the book. Absolutely. So uh, it was great. It was a great conversation with Jake. Good stuff. And Jake's got a lot of books out there as well that you need to check out. We'll definitely put that link in the show notes so you can check out the book for yourself. And I suggest everybody go out there and support your local bookstore and order that book and uh, and go ahead and, and learn more. Learn more. The more you know. If you love Disney and pop culture, please consider subscribing to the show. Tell your friends about it. We're on every podcast platform. And now we're in Denmark, as Dave has mentioned last week. So please get a look at that. Radio Uh, Denmark. Radio Denmark, man. It's awesome. Give us a like and a follow on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of our socials. And be sure to check out the show archive as well. Skullrockpodcast.com, everywhere you find podcasts. Send us those emails. Keep those show show, um, ideas coming. We love to hear from you, Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com or Aljon at SkullRockPodcast.com. Dave. And if you're interested in uh, reading a little more history on Disney, visit DavidBosser.com. Under the Articles tab, there's about 60 articles uh, on various topics that are Disney-related. You can read those. It's all for free. I hope you enjoy some of that. Uh, and with that, we look forward to seeing you back here uh on monday next week another week my (laughs) gosh uh we'll see you again uh right here on the skull rock podcast skull rock podcast is made possible by listeners like you we'd love to thank 
Charles, Lindsay, Spencer, and Joshua. To support this podcast to sustain future episodes, visit anchor.fm forward slash Skull Rock Podcast.